Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined from Qatar by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and from South London by Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. This is the Blink and You'll Miss It World Cup. It begins on Sunday, only a week after the suspension of the Premier League. Liverpool and Manchester City are scheduled to meet in the League Cup two days after the final. That's simply ludicrous. The unnatural consequence of a questionable decision to award the finals to a small Gulf state. Now you're there, Johnny. Do they know what's about to hit them? Not sure they do, Mike. They're definitely prepared for the backlash. In fact, I think the the mood and and the, the comms coming out of Qatar changed noticeably over the last six months where I think they, they started to go a lot more on the front foot and try to push back against some of the criticisms over human rights and inclusivity and starting to sort of push the the line that this is, you know, this is our, our culture and, and deal with it. But there will be a tide of, you know, interrogative articles and coverage that will shock them, I'm sure. But then there will also be, I think, a tide of positivity that might shock us that once the tournament begins, we will go into football fan mode, whether we want to or not. I mean, I, I can't deny that despite having huge mixed feelings about being here, once the tournament starts, I love football. I, I will get excited. You know, I, I will not be able to not enjoy this this tournament. So we will we will probably go through a cycle where in the next few days, Guardian have, 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 have done a big expose, the Telegraph have been covering it. I'm sure we will in, in, in the times over the next little while, there'll, there'll be all the kind of scene-setting, investigative stuff. The football will start, there'll be lots of happy football articles, and then at the end of the World Cup, we'll all start writing, well, maybe we shouldn't have been here after all. <laughs> and the whole world's been put in an invidious position by this tournament. It's really on chart territory as well, Mike, as you, as you mentioned in your intro, really. The timing of it, all the peculiarities around it. It's a strange feeling being here, there was something surreal last night about getting... A, I, I drove in from the airport to my journalist compound, my FIFA-approved journalist compound in, in a suburb of the city. Drove past signs for Stadium 974, which sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel. And, of course, that's the stadium that they, they've made from 974 shipping containers that they're going to dismantle after the tournament, except they don't know where they're then get, you know who's going to get the stadium because nobody's... I don't think anyone wants it at the moment, but they might give it to another nation. And there's so many weird, surreal things about the finals being here, as I say, uncharted territory. Yeah, and it's you know, estimated that it's cost the Qataris 200 billion, which is just a figure which makes your eyes pop out, doesn't it? Tony, you know, Gareth Southgate has said that it's highly unlikely that England will heed FIFA's edict about talking only about football. To be honest, that's only right and proper, isn't it? Absolutely. I do think there's a very fine line when it comes to engaging with major discussion points around major sporting events, doesn't it? Particularly when you're looking at 
the kind of political, humanitarian and, and frankly moral considerations that come into play with this particular tournament. I think the intentions, we, we talked about, you know, the, the, the Netherlands squad looking to meet migrant workers, for example, the Australian squad who made a collective statement about Qatar's scary lack of human rights record. Those kind of things are admirable, but that comes with that a need to be at least moderately well-informed. I think the FA are absolutely blessed with Gareth Southgate, who is on every level well-informed, sensible and sensitive character. He's unbelievably reliable when it comes to speaking on issues like this. He'll take the lead. And there is a very slick media team operation around the England team at the moment who will know which players are best positioned, I guess, to, to get involved and join Southgate in making any public comments. I expect Harry Kane, obviously, and Jordan Henderson will probably be at the forefront of that. I mean, ultimately, it's not the coaches or the players or the team's fault at this tournament, which in some ways is a bit of a monstrosity as being held when it is or where it is. But they do have to be ready to answer questions if they face them. In England's case, I'm sure they will be, because if they're not, they run the risk in dealing in platitudes. Mm. Which is basically FIFA's stocking trade, looking at the, the PR videos they're coming out with. On that point, Johnny, FIFA's lack of credibility. World Cups tend to show them in the worst possible light, don't they? You know, if you think back, even in the recent history, you've had the example of that shameless exploitation of... Nelson Mandela's reputation in South Africa, the equally shameless subservience to Vladimir Putin in, in 2018. I suppose it's, a, it's an easy question to ask and probably a difficult one to answer, but is FIFA fit for purpose? I'm not sure if it's a difficult one to answer at all, Mike, because yeah, I think it's a clear no. Um, you, you, you paint that very well because what, I think what I'd like to come out of this is the attention to be on FIFA as much as on Qatar. I understand actually the Qatari response, which would go along the lines of why are you picking on us? Because when you think back four years ago, we all went to Putin's Russia. We were watching football in stadiums that again were constructed using migrant workers, migrant workers who died, the, the, the St. Petersburg Stadium, which was a centerpiece. I think they, 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 they were, there were several deaths of North Korean workers who were bussed in to make that and lived in appalling conditions, but we didn't have, there was not the same reporting. And then at the end of the tournament, there was this great charade where Putin, you know, appeared presenting the, 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 the trophy with his lackeys around him. I think we all remember it in the rain with the only umbrella in the whole place was reserved for him and nobody else. <laughs> and, you know, it was a Vladimir Putin World Cup. And two years, three years later, he's, he's invading Ukraine and we're like suddenly, oh my God, you know, he's a, he's a horrible man. But there was not enough interrogation of that tournament. And then I think back to 2014 when we were in Brazil with its own issues, South Africa, there are issues around that. I mean, if you think back, that's four World Cups in a row now. And I think if anything's to come out of this, it should be real scrutiny and, and a change in the way FIFA is governed and the way tournaments are awarded. There's an excellent initiative, a social media campaign called Pay Up FIFA, and, and, and it would look to enshrine some of these things in a formula where FIFA itself, because it makes you know, a couple of billion out of a World Cup, FIFA itself would be responsible for compensating any worker deaths involved in stadiums. And FIFA itself would be held accountable over some of the human rights stuff if you're going to award a tournament, then it's your responsibility. And I, I like that because that, that shifts it not just from one small Gulf country, but actually to the whole mechanism that we're talking about and the whole, let's say, warp values that FIFA have around awarding these tournaments. Mm -hmm. Yet yeah, we just still have the site of Gianni Infantino, who by the way still happens to live in Qatar. You know, that the FIFA president essentially lecturing the world in, I think it was in Bali, which is a nice place for a conference, I suppose, lecturing the world that, um, you know, there should be a ceasefire for a month because of the football. You know, I suppose, you know, we're all accustomed and, and, and hardened by this sort of, you know, superficial nonsense. But can football change the world, Tony? No, I mean, football can change individuals' lives for, for sure, but I think long-lasting social and political change ain't part of the deal, is it? I think we're in clutching at straws territory if we think it is. 
I mean, Johnny's already referred to kind of the recent history of the World Cup, but you go further back in history. Did the 1934 World Cup change Mussolini? Did the 1936 Olympics change Hitler? Did the 1978 World Cup change the soften the military dictatorship that ran Argentina at the time? And you've already alluded to Putin, not just the 2018 World Cup, but the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. One of the reasons that questionable political regimes have the money to finance major sporting events is they don't mind taking it off their own people. Or in Qatar's case, they don't mind paying people borderline nothing to come and make it happen for them. If these countries historically, and Qatar now, don't care a huge amount about softening their stance in the build-up to a tournament when the focus is never greater, then they're not really going to bother much once everyone's left and the lights whether they're rainbow coloured or not, are turned off. So, <laughs> no, Mike, is the answer to your question. It can't. <laughs> oh, well, 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 let's take refuge in an age of innocence. Glenn Hoddle has played and managed England at the World Cup. Yet, for the purposes of our conversation, we began by concentrating on the eight-year-old boy who watched England win the Jules Remade trophy with his best mate. Well, welcome, Glenn. Age, as you know very well, is just a number. <laughs> yes. Now, I've worked out that we were both eight years old when England won the World Cup. Mm, correct. My memories of that day are pretty woolly, but I can remember sitting on the, on the settee with my dad and watching it and talking about it on, on the school bus. What are your memories of that day? I can remember the World Cup in itself, like it was yesterday in many ways. Watched every game. With my old mate Andy Jesse, we're only he was two years on, so he'd have been ten. I was eight. I made a great big banner where we lived on a grove. It was a, a circular, like a grove, and we. I remember us taking the banner out, World Cup, in the uh, qualify in the group games. Little bit of attention as people, you know, it wasn't quite the same as it was to that in this day and age, but yeah. And uh, it, it was really unique, England for the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Original, really, yeah. And then, you know, the games as they went and they unfolded. But then that final, I went to Andy's house to watch it. He only lived around the corner. And we watched the final. I remember actually bursting into tears when they equalised at 2 1. I thought we'd done it. And you remember the free kick mm. bounces off and he just. Close bank, range. Yeah. yeah, Gordon Banks can't quite get there, his hands. And as a youngster, you never, you know, I wasn't quite, I didn't quite understand you know the extra time bit at that time i think i was like baffled as what happens you know and uh, then the, the dad sort of you know we got an extra time now and i was like crying i was i thought we'd lost so it was it was horrible it was a horrible feeling but then it was like oh well extra times and then i remember that that last goal like it was yesterday bobby moore plays one over the top jeff Hurst, and uh yeah, we've seen it many times, but back then, and the the great feeling I had then was, let's take this banner out now. You can imagine, like we got so much more notice. You know, lots of people were yeah. coming out, and there was a great feeling around. Street party. Oh, it was great. It was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. and um, it was all worthwhile doing that banner. Because yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny, as, you know, as a kid, players seem bigger physically than they were. I, you know, I can remember. A couple of years later, being a ball boy at Watford, mm. and Shankly brought Liverpool down. And I looked at Ron Yates, the centre-half, as if he was some sort of, like, you know, Generation X hero, yeah. 40 years, 50 years before his time. Of that team, who were the players who made the greatest impression on you? Oh, without a doubt, Bobby Charlton. As, my, as a player, I was as well. Midfield, I was still young then, obviously, but Bobby Charlton was the one that stood out for me, the way he... Uh, his body swerve, I think I, that was something I, I reckon. I can't remember if I had it naturally then because I was only just starting to play football at school level at eight. But I had that body swerve off to a tee and I, I think Bobby Charlton had an influence on me on that. I really do. But Bobby was, I was lucky enough to be two-footed and Bobby was naturally two-footed as well. So it was Bobby Charlton without a doubt was the one that I watched and the, the goals, the couple of goals he scored there. One against Mexico. Mexico yeah. and obviously in the semis against Portugal. But it was just a fantastic, yeah. I, I, my dad played for Harlow and they trained, Portugal trained, stayed in Harlow in the hotel there. I mean, I don't know why, it's quite a long way actually, mm. back in the day to Wembley from there. 
Anyway, they trained at Harlow, the Harlow where Dad played, and I was only eight, as you know. Dad got me into the uh, to the changing rooms. One, they were training there one evening. Dad sneaked me in, and I had my autograph book. And I remember getting into a, a room with just Eusebio, laying on a, a bed, being massaged, like covered from from toe to neck in soap. <laughs> And they're two masseurs massaging his legs after a training session in the evening under the floodlights. And I can remember it, you know, he's, he's sitting there and I'm, I'm only eight, so he's laying on this bed and his eyes are like meeting my eyes. It was the same height and he just, I remember him shaking me on the head like that, you know, and soap being on my head. <laughs> and then I was annoyed afterwards. He signed my book, but his thumbprint was on the book because there was soap all over him. And I was really annoyed. I said to Dad, like, what's the matter? What's the matter? I said, oh, it's fantastic. I was, I was like petrified when I walked in there. I said, but he's, he's messed my book up. And Dad went, don't be silly, son. He said, you have got, I wish I'd have kept it, you've got his autograph and you've got his thumbprint. <laughs> the great Eusebio. And it was, 66 was really his, I thought it was his and Bobby Charlton's probably World Cup as such. Yeah, it was. Because he, uh, he was brilliant, wasn't he? So, yeah, so I remember the things like that during that uh, that 66 World Cup. It was incredible. Did that experience almost plant the seed of wanting to play for your country? You know, oh, every yes. kid has that dream Two and things. very few people do it, obviously. Two things, Mike. The FA Cup, as a kid, growing through from probably 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, blah, blah, blah. The FA Cup was, was something special. And then that 66 World Cup, and then the 70 World Cup. I was a little bit older, so I understood a lot more. Mm. They had a massive influence on. And of course, you know, I wanted to be a footballer. I was, I was training at Tottenham when I was 11, 11 and a half. But you know, you don't know you're going to be a player. You don't know if you're going to make it. You're hoping. But that was the dream to play in an FA Cup final and then to play for your country. And back in the day, it was, you know, these were live games. They weren't. We didn't see any live games, but the FA Cup and England internationals, certainly in the World Cup, were live. And, and England-Scotland games were live, weren't they? They're the only two games that were live, really, when you think about it. Mm. That memory or that achievement places a burden on any England team going into a World Cup, doesn't it? Well, it didn't at the time, because I think we thought we were going to win it again, and we might have won it again mm. in 70. Personally, I think we had a better squad. Mm. But we never dreamt that it was, you know, look at what we did. We didn't even qualify for a tournament in the 70s after that. Mm. We went right the way through the 70s, personal reasons. I think it's because they were mistrusting the, the creative players. Mm. You know, people like Alan Hudson and Tony Curry get two caps and seven caps. And we had the players around. But look what happened. They didn't play them, didn't trust them. And, and to a degree, it was the same through my era. So at the end of the day, what happened? We didn't qualify for a tournament. Mm. The Germans were the ones that lost, you know, in 66, not us. And they reinvented themselves and dominated the 70s. Mm. Do you think you would have been better regarded or better respected, if you want, if you played in a different football culture? Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, I found that out when I went to France, straight away. Yeah, no, that was, that was, uh, that was pretty evident. In some ways, it was our nemesis, in many ways, winning the 60s. Because as coaches, we didn't take it on like the Germans did. We, we, we stopped still. Every, everyone was 4-4-2 for 20 more years. And we, Charlie Hughes and all that. We had our head in the sand. It was like long ball, direct football. And for a creative footballer back in that era, it was tough. You always, I always give the analogy of you're fighting against the tide. You're swimming against a real hard tide. And suddenly, you know, I could see the South Americans and the Continentals, the way they played. It was just, it was the way I wanted to play, you know. What about your World Cup experiences as a player? 82 World Cup was your first, that was my first as, yeah. a, as an observer as well. Mm. 86, you know, there's, I've still got vivid memories of that and the gold yeah. game. What was that game like to play in? Because well, it was carnage off the pitch trying to work out what was going on. Yeah, with the if you remember the Falklands and everything as well, mm, the, yeah. the, the build up to it, it was massive and it worked in their favour rather than us. We were a bunch of footballers just playing, you know. I felt there was a massive, like, emotional incentive for their country and then it crept into their squad as well. They didn't want to win it more than us. We wanted to win it just as much. But, you know, there was a, there was something else that was going to go deep within them. You could see it in, in the 
in their eyes a little bit in the tunnel and before the game. I've always thought that. And that was nothing to do with them, really. It was just the way that it all happened. But to actually go through that experience of seeing... And there was nothing in that game. Up until that hand of God goal, there was nothing in the game. It was a tight game. It wasn't a particularly good game. We knew Maradona was a special, special player. Kept him relatively quiet. And it was always going to sort of twist or turn on a goal, on the first goal. And to see it, I actually saw it. Not all the players saw it. There was three or four of us saw it. And I actually saw his hand come out and punch it. And then I thought the referee, I turned the referee knowing, thinking he's going to blow his whistle. Then I saw the linesman running back to the halfway line and then my stomach started to churn. My stomach, as I'm chasing the referee to explain, putting my hand up to my hand going, it's his hand, his hand balled it, ref. Knowing he's not going to change his mind. You know, was the most sickening feeling. I literally felt as if I was going to spew up because my, it, my stomach... Knew, I knew that he wasn't going to change his mind. We weren't going to change his mind, but it was such an injustice. I was uh, one of my so, most vivid memories from that day. It was, was seeing Bobby, Bobby Robson, immediately mm. afterwards, and he was incandescent. Mm. Mm. And Bobby didn't know at the time that he'd handled it. I remember them saying afterwards, you know, he, he actually didn't see it. There was only, I think there was Schiltz, me, Terry Fennick, somebody else, can't Butch. remember. Not sure Butch saw it. He did it that well, the bugger. <laughs> he threw his head and he'd done it before in Argentina, we found out. But I've never blamed Maradona on that. I, I blame the referee and the linesman. No disrespect. Quarterfinal of the World Cup, you had, I think the linesman was, I think they were from Egypt or Costa, Costa Rica or something. And then, you know, and then they started to decide, you know, it's always us that we're the. We're the ones that they changed things on technology with Frank's goal and mm. all sorts of things. Really, you can you can say with uh, with England, to be honest. And then they changed the idea and they thought, yeah, we have our best referees and linesmen for the from the quarterfinals onwards, <laughs> which they did after. Mm. And so we got we got hurt from that. And the thing was on the pitch, we had to. We, it was such an injustice. It was hard for for two or three minutes to get your mind back on. Hang on a minute. We're still playing here. We're still, you know, only one down. We get a goal back. You know, this is a quarterfinal of the World Cup, Glenn, you know, and all the lads were all sort of, can't say what was going on around the pitch, you know, but the, come on, get your, come on, we can do it. Mm. So you had to go again, but it was such an injustice. The feeling of injustice was, was crazy. And then the second goal was obviously, <laughs> it was two opposites, weren't they? It was yeah. Amazing. Fast forward then to 98, you're now manager, England manager, France, you know, that, penalty shootout against Argentina. What I'm particularly interested in, because I've seen you know, a succession of managers, certain aspects of their personality coming out within, you know, because of the job and because mm. of the scrutiny and everything else. Mm. When you go to a World Cup with an England team as manager, is there some sort of almost like tangible responsibility you feel to the nation? Oh, without a doubt. That's what hit me. I would imagine Terry felt it with the tournament in 96 being in England. But certainly for a World Cup, which is another level, I remember having that feeling six, probably maybe six weeks before the tournament, you know, not like this year. It was at the end of a season. So then suddenly everyone switched their minds to, we'd qualified obviously and it was even since we qualified, wherever I went, it was you know good luck, and it was it was massive. It was massive. But we took the uh, the, the wives come down for a weekend, and we had the we stayed at Birmingham. We went to Chicago. We went to a theatre with the players. You know, had a night out with the girls, and had a barbecue weekend, and just had them down for the weekend. So we went out, and someone had got to know. We had a police escort, but someone obviously got to know that we were going, and perhaps what route we were on. And my God, when we got into the centre of London for about a mile towards the uh, theatre and it was just, the, the pavements were just lined with people coming out of the pubs and offices and that. And it was as if you'd like, won the, the World Cup. Mm. It was, and that, I think the players saw it, I certainly saw it and I thought, wow. And to a certain degree, once we qualified and, and, and then once the season ended, it was, you almost felt like every decision, everything you would say, do it, you're like a prime minister. He had as much responsibility as the Prime Minister. Because you know what? If people saw the Prime Minister in a, in a garage, they wouldn't go out and talk politics to him. But every fan in the world wants to talk football to you, you know? 
or in the shopping centre or wherever, wherever. So it was it was a bit like that. It with the enormity, the size of it, it just it did hit you. Yeah. But you had to cope with that. And obviously I'd I'd experienced that as a player. The World Cup, you know, started to get so big in eighty probably eighty two and eighty six they were just mm. I think eighty six was the tipping point. Yeah, I think it, it was where the first time when simple little things, when we landed on the tarmac, there was the coach was all we didn't have to go through this and that and that. There was like police everywhere around the plane got on our bus and then they took us into the and it was like wow wow this has gone up another level it's, you know things like that made it so much bigger the press conferences that Bobby had to do and, and the, at the training ground you know it was just off the charts yeah yeah because those those I, I remember one of the last press conferences that Ron Greenwood did prior to 82 we did round a table yeah, probably. in Barcelona Airport. Probably, yeah. After yeah. it was a game in Spain. Yeah, yeah. Does that experience of being an England manager give you a particular affinity with Gareth Southgate? Because, you know, if you, if you think about it, he's done all he could do in terms of World Cup semi-final, mm. Euro final. Mm. Now all of a sudden, well, it's what have you done for me lately, mate? <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad analogy, but that's the England job. That's the England job. You know, that pressure is there. I'd like to think of it as you put the nation's thing in there as well, right? So if you're a class, if you're a racehorse, you've come fourth. This is your form. You've come fourth. World Cup become third. Mm. Come second. It's not a bad form, is it? Mm. You'd back it, wouldn't you? <laughs> You'd look in the form and go, oh, I'd have a, bat I'd have a punt on that. And I, you know, and I, th I, I do think well, those results have been poor recently. But I do sympathise with him. I doubly sympathise. There's only a few people that can. Terry Benables, myself, Sven, Kevin Keegan, whoever, who've managed England. There's only a little club really that actually understands what he's going through. But this year particularly, I, I really do feel for him. Having it in the middle of a season is is ridiculous. But we, as far as Gauss is concerned, it's got an additional dimension, which is this sort of political, oh. diplomatic. Oh, cracky! Yeah. You know, yeah. you mentioned prime ministers earlier mm. on. Mm. He is being judged on the standards of almost political discourse now. You know, he has to have a moral stance about this mm. or that or whatever. Which I think he does a fantastic job on. You know, not only has he got us to the Euro finals and, and the World Cup semis. I think, you know, people are just too happy to just think football's all about instant results and the last couple of results. You know, he would be the first to admit they're not played that well. And that, but that's probably a good thing to go into. Before the 86 World Cup, I think we had been, England were unbeaten. I think we went to Canada and played Canada and somewhere else. And somebody said to us, you know, England are un well, England have been un we were unbeaten for, I don't know, nine games. It was like the worst thing that we, I'm thinking, no, <laughs> yeah. and we lost our first game. So you know, I'm, I'm get, we're going in under the radar. Hopefully, everyone's as fit as they can be. Whoever's going to be fit, so we're going in under the radar. He's done a great job, but I think he does a great job off the pitch as well. With like you're saying, you're almost like you're a diplomat as well now. I don't particularly agree with it. Somebody else in in the FA should take that mould and answer those questions and deal with all that. The England manager, we still haven't learned enough. The England manager should be about his squad, his team, the tactics, the result. Why did you win? Why did you? And somebody else, if you get a question that is about whatever, and particularly in this World Cup, I'll take that question. That's the question for me. I'll deal with that. Somebody else does that. Hmm. And they haven't learned enough. But the genie's out of the bottle with that one now, isn't it? Well, it is. But you could, if they had the forthright and they had the, uh, the understanding what was going to make us win the World Cup, what would give us the best chance. It's not. We don't know we can win the World Cup, nor the Brazil, nor the France. No one knows at this moment in time. But it's about getting the right jockey on it, with the best trainer, and the best circumstances. Then you've got a chance. You might not still win the race, but I've always said, take away all these pressures and that. You're there. Listen, the day after the World Cup, who's going to worry? Who's going to ask him questions about so and so? What's going into the World Cup? How the stadiums were built and blah 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 blah. That's a fact. That's a fact, and it's you, you got ideas about that, right or wrong. But somebody who's official on that side should deal with that. You know, the day after the World Cup, if we've not won it or we have won it, that's not even being thought about. Mm. But you... that's going to take him away from the job that he needs. To be, you know, it's taking him off his mindset, is in every energy, 
It's such a pressurized scenario, and there's only a few of us that have gone through it. You have to be 100% focused on everything you're doing, football, football-wise, football-wise, everything. Do you believe in, in the concept of a tournament team? You know, we've mm. got that mm. psychology of, mm. of building up into a tournament. Mm. And if you do, what are the specific qualities that you look for in a team that is going to do that type of thing and just maybe come on the rails or whatever? Well, I think it's first and foremost what shape you're going to play, what style and what shape you're going to play needs to go into the play. Needs to, you need to have clarification. And that's where everyone's going to have outside ideas and thoughts. But as a manager, you've got to make them decision. It's your decision. You're, in, you're the one driving the car. So who suits what system? You know, I can, I can sit here and go, this is what I would, the team I would start with. And, that, and if they won, I'd like to keep it and no injuries, blah, blah, blah. And if someone was injured, I could play him there. But that's, that's going to be Gareth's situation. It'd be different to mine. So somebody else would be in there if he's playing a different shape. So there's a multitude of things that's got to be done. But I think that's, you know, you, when you're an England manager, tournament football is slightly different. First game's massive. Don't lose it. That's the key. So it's almost like you're going straight away into, not knockout football, but different football. The pressure's on. You lose that game. That is, you're now, like as we did as a player in 86, we lost to um, Portugal first game. And we were, on, you could see Bobby was under pressure. We were under pressure. We lose Robbo and we lose uh, Ray. These are always experiences that I had as a player, see. We go down to 10 men against Morocco in 110 degrees, managed by a miracle to keep a nil-nil, and now we've got to beat Poland to qualify. So you lose the first game, you are behind the eight ball straight away. And we got through. You sort of bounce back or you rely on them sort of experiences. So the first game is, is massive. Mine was against um, down at Marseille against Tunisia and we got a, we got a good win good performance and then you go from there and you think right who's played well and then there's certain games we, we had people like Michael Owen was always going to play against Colombia they played so high up near the halfway line with his pace as an 18 year old he was always going to play in that game whether anyone scored a hat trick he was going to play because that was the right thing to do against that opposition you know, so there's that's how I looked and shaped things up. But mainly the spine of the team would stay the same and the peripheral could move. And I had very good squad. Gareth going forward, attacking, has got options. Mm. Who do you, you think know? his key players will be? Well, I think there's a couple. If you said to me, if you asked me the question, how are we going to win the World Cup? This wouldn't be my key reason, but we have to have a goalkeeper that has a really good tournament. That's probably going to be Pickford. He's got to have a really good tournament, not an average one or one that he makes mistakes in. And it's how we defend is is how how well we'll do, how deep we'll go into the tournament. And he's got injury problems in those positions. He's got people that, you know, Harry Maguire, for instance, who's been out for a long time, not played enough football really, but he'll... So if he goes with him, you know, that that is our Achilles heel in, 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 in so, so many ways, more than, more than normal, actually. But we've got so many assets. I think... You tell me one of them, even Brazil, and this is what we got sometimes. Look, I always used to look at reversing it and looking at if Brazil or even France, and I'm, tick, I'm picking the two top teams there, or let's say Argentina, if they had Rice and Bellingham in their team, I think they'd get in them teams, let alone the other teams, Belgium and all them. And then you go to a young man that I think could be something special. He is for his club, but again, Foden, for me, is a special player who could take us and, and take us to another level. If he, get, if he gets near to his club form, he doesn't at the moment because he doesn't feel like that this moment in time in an England shirt. But he's got the capabilities. He can score goals. He can create. He's got all them assets. So whatever shape you play, he's a, he's a must. So there's, there, you can see there's a spine already being sort of, without him thinking of it, but I'd like to think, you know, would the Germans like those two central midfield players? You bet your bottom dollar, would. Would Belgium? Yes, they would. All these, you know, African teams that are, that are getting better, would they have them two in there? Yes, they would. They're a terrific two players to set off all, all other things. You've got to get Kane service. You've got people that can serve that. Whether you want to play wide wingers or whether you want to play the little inside forwards, we've got you know, whatever system Gareth wants to play. Going forward, we've got enough there to open teams up, but it's um, 
it's allowing them to play in that mode and, and allowing them to have that clarity and have that thought of mind of, of being able to do that, which I think Gareth allows them. He does do that. Mm. Your suspicion is the way we defend. The keeper's got to have a blind. He's got to come out as probably the best goalkeeper in the tournament. For whenever, you know, hopefully he doesn't get overworked, but when he does get worked, whoever it is, has to have a good tournament. And a good tournament means goalkeepers... Whoever makes less mistakes, that doesn't the ball doesn't end up in the back in the net, will have a good tournament, and then he'll get the confidence. Because I, there's a wonderful unpredictability about finals. You know, there are people who come from nowhere to actually mm. be dominant, like Scalacci, for instance. Mm. You know, for instance. Oh yeah, yeah. I know this is. I'm asking you to predict something which is I've said is unpredictable. But is this one player you've talked about, Phil Foden? Mm. Let's look outside the England team. Is there one player? In another squad who's going to announce himself as a global superstar? Oh, it's a big question. It's very difficult to answer that, not knowing, not looking, going through all the squad. I think the lad Pedri at uh, Barca is a special player, the young kid, 19. He looks as if he could, and uh, Javé was talking about him, and obviously he ain't going to talk talk him up. He's not the national manager, but he's, he's what he said. You know, I've seen him, but I've not seen him in depth. I was like, Javi knows him. He could be one. But then how far are the Spanish team going to go? That's another question. We've got as much chance as, you know, Brazil and France, I think, will be favourites with a little bit of maybe Argentina. But Argentina are a funny team, you know. They're relying on Messi so much. No disrespect, they've got Otamendi and they've got people like Celso who couldn't get in the Tottenham team. You know, they're playing in, they're playing in their starting 11s. And Brazil looks strong to me. They really do. They look defensively strong as well. So they're going to be a, a danger. But um, there's no outstanding team. France have a little bit like us. They've hit hit the buffers. And you know what? A team like Denmark could. They had a good Euros. They could be a, a dark horse, as they say, who could come up the outside and just pit. You know, they're well organised. They're, they're strong mentally. They're physically there, and they've got ability as well. So. A team like Denmark could be there. So it it's really is, it's a very open, open race, this, this World Cup. OK, so for a final point, I'm going to put you on the spot, really. Who's going to win it? <laughs> I think we'll fall just short with the defensive uh, frailties. But, hey, listen, we've got as much as chance as those... T- I've got to say that the environment and wherever... Years ago, you know, playing in Europe, South Americans playing in Europe, it's more difficult for Europeans to go to South America and win a World Cup. Now they're all playing Europe. And it's a global game. Yeah, the Brazil Brazil team now, a lot of them Premier League, if not Bundesliga, a few from Brazil, but not many. <clears throat> and I think, looking at their, they've got solidness about them. They've got what I'm talking about. They've got either goalkeeper. You know, to win a World Cup, you've got to have a really solid... Golden Banks was a, had a fabulous tournament. Back in '66, but if you look at it, most Neuer when Germany won it a few times, the goalkeepers are very vital that they have a good tournament. You know, and Gareth won't know that. He'll pick his man, and you're just thinking, hope he makes the good decisions. So they'll definitely have this solid base to then what they've got up the top of the pitch, but they always they always have. I'd probably think they're 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 favourites, and I, I, rightly so. So I I I think the environment of Qatar is going to suit them. It's not like playing in Europe. It's not playing in South America. So I think it's in between. I think the environment there would be uh, conducive for them winning it. So I think, rightly so, they're favourites. And I think they might win it. It's a bit of a chicken in the egg because a lot of teams play against the shirt and come unstuck. But then to actually wear the shirt, there's a lot of pressure. And the expectations of of Brazil always. So it's a conundrum, isn't it? Mm. Who's going to... And there's always, around that camp... You know, in every Brazil World Cup mm. squad that I've you know, been into, yeah. it's manic, isn't it? Mm. It's mad. Yeah, yeah, it seems it. I've never been privy to that. You'd be privy to that more than me, but you just get a, a feel from the outside. But that's when they come alive. There's players I look in that squad that I think, hmm, I'm not so sure. Well, you know, how's he got in, how are they in the squad? But it's something about when they get together, they've got this outlook different outlook about football, even now, modern day game, and this casualness and this relaxed mm. feeling. And if they start well, 
then I think, you know, they'll be tough to beat. They really will. But uh, but they've got a solidness about them. You look at their back players, they've got a real solidness and experience about them that um, sometimes when you play Brazil in the, back in the day, in the best teams, you think, well, you can get at them. You know, and the goalie's not great. You can get at them. They're so far, they're thinking forward all the time. Not this squad, not this squad. Well, Glenn, thanks for your time. Absolute pleasure. Enjoy. Well, listener, I hope you enjoyed the last of the summer wine edition of the Football People podcast. Johnny, I love that conversation with Glenn. It was almost the five ages of football man. Childhood fan, player, manager, commentator, and now Doyen. Very few have his sense of perspective, do they? They don't. I love the interview too, Mike. And, and I think one of the reasons Glenn's still, you know, of his generation, such a top pundit and there aren't, there aren't many of his generation now in that job is, it comes through in the interview, there's, a, there's, there's just the pure love of the game. There's the different view of the game which made him such a, a creative and, and special player. And I found that, that bit of the interview really fascinating when he talked about swimming against the tide as this sort of European or South American style playmaker in a 4-4-2 world. And that observation that maybe the 1966 World Cup was invidious for, for English football in a way because it tied everybody to the Charles Hughes way of doing things for the next you know, 30, 40 years. I find that fascinating. But, oh, I mean, Glenn's views on the World Cup as well, just, just spot on, really. You know, he's, he, as you say, he's been through so many different stages. He's taken a team to the World Cup. He's understood what it is to be an England manager, the, the political, the media pressure on you, the nuts and bolts of how you succeed at tournaments. And, and that's going to be, in my mind, actually, some of his words about, you know, just this is basically the prosaic but very important football issues, like you need a good defence, you need a good goalkeeper. He's seen so much of it. And I love the, I love the perspective. He's always been his own man, Glenn, and, and that comes through. And... Yeah, I found myself agreeing, actually, with quite a lot of his analysis there. Mm. I thought, sorry to interrupt for a minute, but I just I wanted to say that the, the really interesting thing for me, and I agree with everything that Johnny's just said, but his reference to the, the Michael Owen selection against Colombia in 1998, which the idea that Owen, who was you know still a, still a teenager, was always going to start because Colombia played this crazy high line. I mean, 98, in some ways, isn't that long ago, but in, in kind of tactical and technical terms in football, it seems like an age. And so just hearing Hoddle have what now seems like a basic tactical point is something that maybe people weren't thinking about quite then. And I also remember the, the last 16 game against Argentina, which I may kind of lionise Hoddle's efforts in my, my, my own mind. But I just seem to remember when, when Beckham got sent off, one, he kept, he had the brave, the brave decision to keep Owen on. And he made the even braver decision, I think, to kind of keep him on up against defenders who were absolutely terrified of him and kind of push Shearer into a kind of, Alan Shearer, who was the senior striker, into a kind of wider, more do a job role. I think that's probably why Glenn is still such a good pundit now, because he, he has always had this kind of tactical insight that not everyone of his generation necessarily has. You you speak to a lot of coaches in your day job, Tony, obviously. Would they share Glenn's views about the enduring impact of a lack of faith in creative players? That's a really good question. And I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, we look at some of the most high profile coaches in, in the world now, and they still very much believe in the system over the individual creativity of the player. So someone like Pep Guardiola, for example, who I've not yet spoken to, but you know, one of the theories that Jack Grealish has struggled a bit with City is because he doesn't have the freedom at City that he, that he had at Aston Villa previously. And you know, Jurgen Klopp obviously plays, has played... There, there is room for individual talent, but it is all part of the wider system. But the irony, of course, with Glenn is that when it came to making his final decision for 1998, he left out Paul Gascoigne. So he, he as a coach is, it knows what it's like to make pragmatic decisions that as a player or maybe a doyen now, as you beautifully describe him, he can disagree with. But yeah, he definitely, uh, there is definitely a lot of modern football in Glenn Hoddle, I think. He, it feels like he's, that passion that comes out, and it came out beautifully in the interview, means that he will always keep, it feels like he will always keep up to date with trends and the way football is developing, like I say, in a way that some of his, some of his peers maybe don't. Mm. Do you agree, Johnny, with his with his overall verdict on England you know, falling just short? You know, the defence is the obvious weak point. 
okay, he's looking at Phil Foden as a potential breakout star. In overall terms, you agree with him? I do. I thought that was a shrewd observation. England's success at the last two tournaments has been, you know, based on being really hard to score goals against. And that's the two sides of Gareth Southgate right there because he tends to have, against the ball, seven men behind it, you know, back five and, and two old midfielders. And and we sort of cry out for a bit more creativity and risk, but that formula has worked really well. Now, the interesting thing about what's happened in the run-up to this World Cup in the last 12 months is, is those defensive blocks have just crumbled away. And we're now in a situation where I think Gareth is likely to repeat the formula and try and repeat it. And, and, and in his mind, he'd think, why not? It's, it's brought me success. But as Glenn mentions, he's going to be trying to repeat that formula with a, a Harry Maguire that hasn't been getting selected much for Manchester United, a John Stones who's been playing at right back and has had quite a lot of injuries without either of his first choice. Well, maybe Luke Shaw would have always been a first choice left wing back, but possibly Ben Chilwell might have come into reckoning and certainly without his first choice right wing back. And then Calvin Phillips maybe as a, as a selection at holding midfield who again is coming back from injury. So there's so many unknowns. And I, and I think for that reason, Glenn's right, that that security England have had will not be there. And, and I'd, I'd expect them maybe in the quarterfinal against the Denmark or France. My expectation is they'll get, they'll get found out. Having seen them in the last year against you know Germany getting, getting picked off and Hungary getting picked off, I think it's a, a big ask to use that, that, that terrible modern phrase to, for that, for that defence to, to hold up against the very best teams. Mm. What about the fatigue factor, Tony? You know, obviously I highlighted right at the front how absurd this season is, is becoming. And specifically through Harry Kane, I couldn't believe that he played in a League Cup tie that Tottenham obviously didn't really want to win. Is this tournament going to be shaped by the you know absurd demands on modern players? I, on one side, yes, obviously, and obviously Antonio Conte then came out and talked about how tired Harry Kane was, yeah. <laughs> which uh, just makes me love Conte even more. It feels like he's trolling everyone all the time, which is just great value. He really is wonderful value. I mean, we're in the middle of November. We. In any normal season, domestic season, we wouldn't be talking about fatigue in the middle of November. We'd be talking about teams actually probably coming towards kind of peak physical condition a couple of months in. There are always going to be injuries. There are injuries when the World Cup's held in the summer. Um, that's just the way it goes. Harry Kane has played an awful lot of football over an awful long time. If there is fatigue, it's probably it's probably on the back of a number of years of playing intense levels of, of, of high-level football rather than what's happened so far this season. Even so, it was still a surprise to see him play in that League Cup game. But then it's not the first time that Harry Kane's lined up is surprisingly in Spurs games. He just seems, you know, whether the, I don't know him, but it seems that as an individual, he wants to play every game. It's not his choice to make, but um, I don't, and it, you know, we've, we've, we've seen Harry Kane at the start of the season look sluggish numerous times and then suddenly, suddenly find form and before you know, he scored 20, 30, 40 goals a season. So that isn't so much of a concern. I, I, I agree with Johnny. I'm, I'm sure we, you know, as everyone does, that, that there are question marks at the back for England. Too many question marks for Gareth Southgate, who's a naturally cautious coach, and, and Steve Holland to consider. But we are where we are. Let's see whether whether he goes and and, and as he has, as he did in the Euros, plays with a slightly more attacking lineup with with a back four and a kind of and, and three behind Kane in, in in the group stages. When it did come to the big games in the Euros, Germany, Italy, he played he played reverted to the back five. And the midfield two sitters. The, the interesting player for me to see how he uses is, is Jude Bellingham. I think if you play with a back three slash five, then you see Bellingham sitting alongside Declan Rice, but having more freedom to go forward. If you're playing a four-two-three-one, which I think we might see in the group stages, does that restrict Bellingham's movement, or does Calvin Phillips come into the mix, or Jordan Henderson? I personally, actually, from a personal point of view, as a fan and from an and from a professional point of view, just want to see Jude Bellingham play as much football as possible. He's a superstar. Yeah, certainly is. What about Wales? Are we looking, Johnny, here at a manifestation of the Gareth Bale effect? I mean, Bale's fascinating. I, you know, he's talking now about being able to play three times 90 minutes in the group stages. The, guy, <laughs> the guy's played 90 minutes once in, in a year. 
Um, and I, oh, I, I, I watched the MLS Cup final almost by accident and turned it on, and I was just compelled by Gareth Bale, who'd not long, you know, not long come onto the pitch, did absolutely nothing except for basically win the win the game or at least get the game to penalties for which side then won, and it's with an incredible header, and it's Gareth Bale all over, as others have said. He now plays, you know, his club is now Wales, and and then whoever will pay him to make the odd sort of marketing appearance, and he's been readying himself for this tournament. He'll do something. I'm sure he'll he'll pop in a free kick. He'll he'll, he'll make an impact, and for the Welsh, it's it's about what happens around him, of course, and what I like is they've 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 got you know, nobody outstanding, but they've got some pretty useful, younger, attack-minded players who who all seem to contribute at different times. You Harry Wilsons, Nico Williams and and so on. I think they'll be I think they'll be good value with the Welsh. It's I actually think the whole group is 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 brilliantly poised. It is the toughest group I think in the in the tournament um in, in many ways just because there's no weak link. There's England plus three teams who play in very different ways who will all have threats. And that Wales USA game's gonna get you know we're all looking at England Iran I think that'll be a grim watch, actually. Whereas I think Wales USA <laughs> will be fantastic. Mm. That US team, Tony, youth. There's a bit of unpredictability there. What do you think the pros and cons are of of, of the United States challenge? Well, I'm not. They they weren't massively impressive in qualifying, where they they kind of stumbled through a group that you would expect them to through that kind of Central and North America group that you'd expect them to stroll through. They finished behind Canada, who are who are kind of renewed as a footballing force and, and and Mexico who just qualify every time. And I look forward to seeing how they lose in the last 16 this time. But and I know that Greg Berhalter, the, the head coach, hasn't been universally popular since, since taking over. He's got experience of European football. He, he played in the Netherlands and Germany, even for Crystal Palace in it for a short while around the turn of the century. So he's, he's fully aware of, of European football. And he has some excellent young talent. Christian Pulisic is the poster boy. And actually, I checked earlier, he's one of only three players in the squad with more than 50 caps. So like you say, uh, largely an experienced squad. But the, the Leeds players, Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson, have got energy abounding and, and no little quality. And the USA, not not unlike a lot of teams, uh, they do tend to raise their games at World Cup World Cups as a whole. And that, like, that, that Wales game is a huge one. You get the feeling that both teams might go for it, whereas Iran under... A manager in Carlos Queiroz, who has now firmly as, uh, kind of ascended to to wily old operator level, will definitely not. So yeah, I think let's hope from an England point of view, we're all watching, enjoying Wales USA from an England two, Harry Kane seventy four eighty three, uh, Iran <laughs> nil point of view. <laughs> what about potential breakout stars, Johnny? Um, Glenn mentioned Pedri. Yeah, I'm tempted to go for Jamal Musiala. Basically, the one England that get away. You know, only 19, played 100 games for Bayern, and he's now being compared to Messi, which is not a bad combination. Uh, who are you be looking for to, to actually take that step forward? Well, as, as a professional fence sitter, Mike, I'm going to give you two, actually. I think, <laughs> I think one of them would be Kamavinga, who, who, who you know, is just an outstanding talent, as we've already seen for Real Madrid, with an appetite for... Uh, the big stage and making big impacts when he when he gets his chance for Real and in the absence of uh, Kante he could he could really and, and Pogba he could really sort of be the driving force in, in that French team and actually I think maybe the absence of those two does France a favour because it automatically renews them and, and gets Deschamps away from just doing the same thing again every single time I think Camavinga could be a real force here and the other player is, is a teammate in Marcella's Alfonso Davis, I just we touched on Canada. I'm so interested to see how they're going to do because they've got some outstanding players and had such a great qualification campaign. And Davis is the is a poster boy, incredibly fast, very skillful, plays higher up the pitch for Canada than he does for 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 Bayern. And he's got this incredible story, you know, sort of spent part of his early life in an immigrant camp in in in, um, in Canada and and. There's a magical sort of element to, to his whole career, and I just fancy this could be a stage for him to to do something. Whether Canada can go far enough to be his vehicle is, is the question, 
but they're in an okay group and, and I think in the early stages he might really catch the eye. Mm. Any anyone you're looking out for above and beyond those tone? Uh, well, I'm impressed by you gone by the two of you going for breakout stars from those minor clubs, Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna, <laughs> so I'm gonna follow suit and pick another Real Madrid player. I absolutely love Fede Valverde, who's actually possibly older than all the three guys you mentioned, so even qualifies even less. But in a Real Madrid team of that has plenty of stars in it, this guy just does not get mentioned anywhere near as much as he should. He was the best player in the Champions League final against Liverpool last season, much to my chagrin. He's been brilliant this season in a, in a Real team that is still doing well. And he is, along with Rodrigo Bentancur, who is playing the best football of his life at Tottenham, part of a could form part of a Uruguay midfield that could really do some damage. They've got Uruguay, a really interesting team. They're always a really interesting team, aren't they? They've still got the old war horses at the back, go down Jimenez, Caceres. There'll be the absolute chaos up front of Suarez and, and hopefully Darwin Nunez. Cavani in and around as well. There's a great narrative of Uruguay playing Ghana. We all know what happened the last time they met at a World Cup. And actually, if they, if they, they that group is winnable, Portugal are in there as well. If they win that group, then they have a, a more than winnable, hopefully, second round tie. And Uruguay could be really interesting to watch going forward. But Valverde is the best, the best player in that team, and just a wonderful player to watch. Yeah, I think Spain will be a bit of fun because I, I loved um, Luis Enrique's tongue-in-cheek suggestion that he's the uh, best coach in the world. As long as he believes it, that's great. He's also set up a, he set up a Twitch account, hasn't he? So he'll be kind of posting things personally, regularly through the tournament, which could be which could be fun to watch. He's a really interesting guy. I thought, I thought Spain, Spain were, uh, when they, against Italy in the semi-finals of the Euros, I thought that was the best performance by any team in that tournament. They actually lost the game because they don't have goal scorers and that might be their undoing again, but they play some wonderful stuff. And Glenn's right, Pedri is a, is another wonderful talent, another one playing at one of Europe's smaller clubs. <laughs> Tony mentioned earlier Portugal, Johnny. I suppose we've got to refer to um, uh, the uh, brand name as um, Cristiano Ronaldo, CR7 and all that. What do you make of all the nonsense prior to the World Cup and will it have any effect on him in Qatar? Well, I mean, it's what a great story it's been. And Ronaldo's not stupid, I think he knows exactly what the whole mechanics of our industry are. So that interview has been timed to hit the sort of real quiet patch of the news cycle between the the club season pausing and the sort of tournament beginning. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's been a gift. It's filled our pages and, and, and our airwaves just at the right time. What do I make of it? I mean, it, it's, it's a huge act of vandalism, isn't it? It's an act of vandalism <laughs> against the club that are, are paying him an eye-watering amounts of money. And it's an act of vandalism actually against his own legacy and, and his own Manchester United's career currently. And all of that he'll know because, and, and, and it, 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 he's, he's willing to do that because he's just so brutal and ruthless about wanting to get out and get to his next destination. I can only think he's got something up his sleeve. I, I don't think he's stupid. He surely couldn't do that interview risking being, being sacked basically for breach of contract without having a club he thinks he can go to and there's reports that you know it might be a Bayern Munich or something like that in terms of the World Cup it puts huge pressure on him because what he's doing is is essentially leaving Manchester United before the World Cup and giving himself these few weeks to try and get himself a new club which which is going to hinge on him bringing some of his old magic to to Portugal's performances but there's so many side plots to this you know how how Bruno Fernandes and him deal with each other and just you know how whether whether Portugal are a bit like Manchester United and they're actually probably better without him I don't know what yeah what what, what a circus and and how how brilliant for our industry yeah well, we are, as you all know, contractually obliged to mention Lionel Messi if we refer to Ronaldo. When you think about it, Tony, a really long unbeaten run, 35 matches, will be 38 and a world record if they get through the group unscathed. Is this the perfect stage for Messi? Yeah, it is. I mean, any stage is a perfect stage for Messi. That's just how wonderful a talent he is. Much as people are getting excited about his form this season, there's just no way a 
35 year old Lionel Messi can be as good as he was four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago. I just I don't think it's possible. But at international level, I don't think you need to be at your best. I just think you need to, to hit form at the right time. Argentina, uh, I think winning, winning the Copa America gets a big monkey off Messi and that team's back, this generation's back. I mean, Angel Di Maria still around, Otamendi, Taliafico. There's plenty of, plenty of older players who've been around for a long time. And you're right, they, they will get through the group. Uh, how they'll progress through the tournament, it, it, I don't know. I, I don't particularly fancy them. But then it's Messi and you never know, do you? I wonder if they've got enough quality in midfield and there's only so many times Messi can be a be a magician. And I just think to have to do that through a group stage and then four knockout games, oh, they'll be in and around the latter stages, but I just can't see them winning it, unfortunately, for Messi. Mm. Matt Brazil, as a final point, Johnny, before I ask both of you to name your winners... One defeat in 29. I thought it was an interesting observation from Glenn that you're playing against the shirt when you're playing against them, but when you know you have to be aware that they're playing with the weight of the shirt as well. You know, Glenn says that they're going to win the World Cup. What do you think? Well, I, I actually agree. I agree with them, and I thought that was a fascinating observation too. Sometimes you get these little snippets of kind of insight into how other countries see themselves or see things that you're not really aware of in our sphere and, and I thought one of those was when Martinelli was selected by Tite for the Brazil squad and there was a bit of pushback in Brazil about this almost being a disgraceful selection, this being silly I mean we look at Martinelli, what, what an incredible player he is, why wouldn't you select a player that good for your squad you'd, you'd have him in the England team straight away but that there's such status there's such importance and there's such history playing for Brazil that, that they, they hold themselves to really high standards and, and there'd be people back in Brazil who think, you know, another 20 great players could, could get that shirt. They've got the best centre-backs apart from France, probably the best collection. They've got real attacking talent, maybe nobody as special as, as Messi and I'm, I'm aware of Neymar's hype, but I don't, I, you know, clearly... I don't quite rate him as highly, but but you know Neymar for Brazil is much better than Neymar for at club level, and he will be good. But they've got plenty of talent around that, and they've got really superb midfield options. They look like the the, the sort of strongest in all the departments, and Tite's been a very good coach for them. So I think I think they're the safest and and, and most plausible selection. But like Glenn says, they're not. This isn't the outstanding Brazil team. They're just a very good Brazil team. There isn't a really outstanding team. And that's what will bring a lot of this down to form. And Brazil are no, no different. It's just what form everyone can hit in the next four weeks. OK, so who is going to hit form and win it? Tony. <laughs> uh, I'm going to stick my neck out again like we have done throughout. I just I, I can't see past Brazil either, I think. I think you've got... We did some content with, with, with TT on the coach's voice and... He spoke about the last World Cup and obviously I think Brazil-Belgium was probably my favourite game of the last World Cup. It was a, an absolute classic. But he spoke about in that game, he spoke about that tournament saying that he, you know, he didn't, in his view, you know, Brazil coaches do one cycle, do one World Cup cycle. They take over after one World Cup, they lead to the next World Cup and he didn't do that. He took over during midway through qualifying. And I think this was possibly, you know, you know, an early... A, premature defeat after the tournament speaking but he but he spoke about how when he decided to stay on one it was a surprise because Brazil coaches Brazilian coaches generally don't last after perceived failure but I think there was a there was a desire there to continue they felt like they had a squad the majority of whom would still be going in four years time that's that's proven largely largely accurate and it feels like it feels like the last four years have been geared up towards this one tournament. Brazil build towards World Cups and, and in the same way they do to Olympics as well, um, in a way that other countries don't necessarily do. I think that the, the climate, I know a lot of these players are European-based and almost European-reared these days, aren't they? But I think the climate will play a part. I think it will be tougher for European teams to dominate in the way they have done at recent World Cups. I think they have a winnable group. They have what looks like a not terrible pathway through on that now actually a potential last 16 tie between Argentina and Denmark could be a, a potential classic for this World Cup uh, Denmark are really dangerous I think but yeah I, I think Brazil are winning that's one for Brazil uh, Johnny yeah I mean I, I'm going to echo that actually I, I, yeah I've spoken about Brazil and I, I think they're the strongest all round I think Denmark are 
real, like Glenn said, like Tony's mentioned, real dark horses, such a good team. Maybe a little unlucky, and I'm not being all Scottish here, but maybe a little unlucky <laughs> not to beat England in that semi. And they could have, I think they probably would have beaten Italy in the Euros final. And just a real team, play great football and, and, and are greater than the, the sum of their parts. I mentioned Canada, who I've got an eye on, and, and I, I, I think Senegal are very interesting of the African nations, even though Mane might not be fit. But come back to Brazil, if they hit their form, they'll, they'll do it. But if, if there's a little bit off it, then six or seven other teams that could win it. Mm. Well, I'm a soppy old romantic, and so I'm going for one final leap of faith in Messi, uh, Argentina for me. I just want to end on almost, you know, we've talked about the politics of the whole thing, but maybe accentuating the positive, and football can do good. As an example of that, Tony Rudiger, who seems to me a pretty solid all-round citizen, his World Cup fee will be used to fund life-changing operations for 11 children in his mother's homeland of Sierra Leone. Uh, All power to him. So, on a personal level, thanks to Glenn for his observations, and thanks, of course, to Johnny and Tony for their insights. Enjoy the World Cup. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.